Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. Um, to answer this question, I think we should start by another question. What is the state? So for Marxists, uh, the state under capitalism is the is a tool for the ruling class to maintain its domination over the working class. In the last analysis, it's armed body, bodies of men in defense of private property. But in some occasional situations, it seems like the state is not really fulfilling this function. In 1927, in China, after Chiang Kai-shek crushed the Shanghai working class, it put all the rich industrialists and bankers of Shanghai in prison and demanded uh, a, a ransom of millions of dollars to rele before releasing them. Um, however, no one will say that the Chiang Kai-shek regime did not protect the capitalist interests. Uh, how can we explain this? Uh, it seems like the state is ruling against the interests of some capitalists uh, against their particular private property. So the fact is that reality is not always black or white. And we are dealing here with what Marxists call uh, a Bonapartist regime. Um, so the phenomenon of Bonapartism cannot be understood without a dialectical understanding of society and history. Um, dialectics is the method that allows us to understand things in their evolution, in their process. It allows uh, us to see the stability in the unstable process and, in, and also to see instability in, in what uh, appears to be very stable. Uh, <coughs> and there's probably no topic, no uh, a clearer example than Bonapartism to see how a wrong method can lead to a completely erroneous uh, understanding. I think the, the best example we can give is the liberals. So the liberals, they don't understand uh, authoritarian regimes. For, for them, the violent nature of the state should be hidden <laughs> behind the appearance of democracy and freedom. Uh, the state shouldn't show this, <laughs> you know. Um, that's what we have in Canada and in many European countries that we had for decades, uh, uh, the reign of bourgeois liberal democracy. But that's not that, you know, the liberals, <laughs> they, they don't, they care about violence of or oppression. No, it's just that they hypocritically uh, prefer uh, to hide this. And then when the liberals, they look at, you know, dictatorial regime, um, they don't understand why, you know, dictators, they don't prefer their model, you know, their democratic regime, uh, as if it was just a question of choice, you know, you choose between one type of bourgeois uh, uh, regime. But in reality, dictatorial regime, i.e. what we call Bonapartism, uh, is not simply a product of, you know, bad guys, psychopaths that spontaneously decide to rule over people. Uh, in a very brutal way. There is a context. You need a particular situation for this phenomenon to, to arise. Um, which means, actually, that you know, we are not condemned, condemned to a very, the very uh, fatalistic liberal approach of like, oh, 
what if there was a bad guy who decided to rule over society? No, there is a way. Uh, it's, it doesn't arise spontaneously. There is a huge content context, but it also means that we can fight <laughs> Bonapartism, we can fight dictatorial regime. And so that's what we are going to, uh, to see, to analyze in, in, in this lead-off. Um, so Vladimir Putin is probably the first person that comes to mind these days uh, when we think about dictator dictators. Uh, we could give other contemporary examples like Xi Jinping, in regime in China, the Saudi regime, uh, the Iran Islamic uh, State, um, many other examples we can give. Uh, but it, this is not a new phenomenon. And when we talk about Bonapartism, obviously we think about the OG, uh, uh, Napoleon, <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte. He's not the OG, but I'll come back to this later. <laughs> um, but as you probably know, Bonaparte came to power uh, um, surfing on the, on the wave of the French Revolution, uh, which abolished monarchy and gave the land to the peasants. Um, and against the counter-revolutionary elements who were plotting to reinstall monarchy, you had the Jacobins, the revolutionary petty bourgeois Jacobins, who launched the, the, what we call the terror in uh, 1793. And the, the, the revolution came about with the alliance of the bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie, and the, the, the very, very small proletariat in Paris, and also, obviously, uh, with the alliance of the huge mass of peasantry. So, enthused by the revolution and the terror, the small proletariat wanted to go further, not just uh, fighting against the nobility and the monarchy, but also against private property. Uh, they wanted economic freedom. And so at the beginning of the terror, you add what we call the les lois du maximum, the maximum law, which basically uh, uh, put a cap on the price of grain, which was a direct threat to uh, the bourgeois property. So we could say, in a way, it was the highest point of the, the bourgeois revolution, uh, the French Revolution, uh, which was a bourgeois revolution. Um, but the, the huge majority of the population, population were peasants. And they were not opposed to private property because they wanted to exploit their own land. Uh, and obviously, the bourgeoisie was, of course, uh, uh, in favor of private property. So, uh, uh, the, the proletariat was too small in compared to the other classes to uh, push their, this uh, idea further. So the bourgeoisie wanted to end the revolutionary chaos <laughs> and, and bring back order, um, but not the feudal order, the new bourgeois order that the revolution uh, 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 created. So they started to swing the pendulum um, in the other direction. And so it's what we can call like the descending phase of the terror uh, with brutal violence against the revolutionary elements. And so um, what we had is that the Paris proletariat, they played a, a huge role in overthrowing the monarchy, but then the bourgeoisie crushed them. <laughs> uh, but after that, the bourgeoisie uh, was not really able to uh, uh, gain control on the situation, was not really strong enough to dominate the, the, the class um, or the, the, the class struggle. So, and it's really in this uh, paralysis in the classes, the deadlock 
in the class struggle that the rule of the sword uh, was needed to impo impose the bourgeois order. So um, it's really in this particular context that the state gained a relative independence from the struggle between the different classes. And so Napoleon uh, was at the head of a powerful army coming from the peasantry. So he won authority uh, with military successes and uh, now was seen as the hero the bourgeoisie needed to restore order. So he rose to power by balancing between the classes. So what it means is that he promised uh, to the bourgeoisie to put an end to the revolution and to the masses, he, prov he, he promised to defend the revolution against the counter-revolutionary, uh, the monarchist counter-revolution. Counter so at moments, he relied on one class against the other, and at other moments, he relied on the other one. Um, and in many ways, the Bonaparte regime was a reminiscence of the absolute monarchy that reigned just before the revolution, before it was crushed by the revolution. So if you go to Paris today, uh, <laughs> you will see it. It's, it's crazy. Go to Les Invalides, for example. Napoleon is really like a king. <laughs> He's really, uh, in a way, like the, the, the tradition of great king, great, great uh, French kings. Uh, he even restored the church, and like a good king who, you know, pretend to derive his power from God. Um, so really, we can say that Napoleon uh, destroy the gains, the political gains of the revolution, destroy the republicanism, uh, but uh, he did not destroy the economical gains. And that's really important. In the end, he was defending the bourgeois property. And uh, it's also why he was so popular with the peasantry. Uh, because with his demagogy, he could appeal to the very conservative side of the French masses that just got their land and now wanted to, you know, take it easy, <laughs> exploit their land, and just go back to a new, new order. Um, so his army was coming from the peasantry. So anyway, he couldn't bring back the feudal order because uh, he would have lost his base of support. Um, Napole the Napoleon regime, and we need to emphasize this because I think the ruling class sometimes they present Napoleon as this great man. It goes with the theory of, of great men that make history. Napoleon's regime was of an extreme violence. There was censorship, big prisons, uh, many spies in the state, uh, a huge bureaucracy. There was no freedom of speech. Uh, uh, it was a very brutal regime. and that came with many military uh, campaigns. Uh, and um, uh, um, he also, one thing that is quite uh, uh, classical or typical of, of, of Napoleon is that um, he imposes power <laughs> with a very brutal apparatus, but then after the fact, he used the, the, the plebiscites <laughs> to justify his rule. So no democracy, no freedom of expression, but then he made the masses, <laughs> after the fact, say if you know, uh, they agree or yes or no. But you know, there was no real way to disagree with the regime. <laughs> so basically, it was, it was just a bit of a farce. Um, so here you have the, what we can, call, we can call the classical uh, situation of bourgeois Bonapartism, 
which arise in the context of unstable equilibrium between the classes, where a strong man can balance between those classes, which allow, uh, allows the state to, um, to elevate uh, itself above, above society uh, with the rule of the sword uh, from the strongman who acts, acts like the, you know, the incarnation of the nation. That's what Napoleon was. Um, and we should add in, uh, to that that the state is still uh, the defender of the bourgeois property while having a relative independence from the bourgeois class itself. Um, so I'm saying this, but really we shouldn't look at uh, Bonaparte's regime and compare it to other regimes as if it was just you know, a grocery list of things you need to check. You know, okay, balancing between the classes, uh, <laughs> strong men, you know, all of this. Um, it's not how you can determine what is a Bonapartist regime or not. Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, we should see Napoleon's regime as a, an example uh, of a general phenomenon. We can compare a regime to Bonaparte's one and see the similarities, but also the differences. Um, we need really a concrete analysis of each regime. And that's what the Marxist method is for. It's not formal logic. Um, and actually, if you look at it, not very long after uh, the, the Napoleon's regime, Marx himself applied this very uh, uh, um, you know, rigorous method to a new regime of Bonapartism, of you know, the regime of Napo uh, Bonaparte's nephew, Louis Bonaparte. Um, Marx wrote uh, the 18 Brumaire of uh, Louis Bonaparte. So uh, what the one we call Napoleon III, um, which actually this book, it's very, very good book, <laughs> actually very uh, a brilliant explanation of uh, uh, the, 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 the evolution of a regime to Bonapartism. I really recommend comrades to uh, read it, read the trilogy of that, that Marx wrote on France, which include this book. That's a very, uh, very good, and there are many comparisons you can make with, with politics of today. Um, so in this book, Marx, uh, you know, explained the, the process that gave rise to the reign of the Second Empire. So uh, very interestingly, the, you probably know the opening line of the book. It's, it's not a novel, but if it was a novel, we could call it the incipit of the, the book. Here it goes. Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts and personages appear so to speak, twice. He forgot to add the first time as a tragedy, the second, second time as a farce. So <laughs> what Marx is doing here, very interestingly, he starts his book on Bonapartism by pointing, po pointing to the differences between the uncle and the nephew. Uh, <laughs> so it's a book on Bonapartism, but already it starts by presenting the differences. Um, so very, you really see the dialectical method. And what happened with Napoleon III? So in France in 1848, uh, we had a, a revolution by the working class, which was violently crushed by the bourgeoisie. But in the process, the bourgeoisie was exhausted, uh, or you know, as exhausted as capacity to govern. So here um, uh, we, we saw again a, a paralysis 
uh, between the classes. And on this basis, Louis Bonaparte uh, raises uh, to power, basing himself here again on peasantry, balancing between the classes and promising to bring order, order to society. Uh, it was another rule uh, of the sword, uh, defending the capitalist property, uh, but his regime was not based, compared to, to the first Bonaparte, was not based on a, a huge boom uh, and on glorious military conquests. Actually, it's really interesting. Um, Marx described Napoleon III, uh, he describes his army as the army of la bohème. And basically, <laughs> basically it means that you know, his army was composed of adventurers, elements of the lumpen proletariat, vagabonds, criminals, etc. So <laughs> it's uh, the way he presents his army, you really see that it's, it's sort of a degenerated uh, or, uh, Bonapoleon, uh, Napoleon uh, uh, style. And, uh, and famously, he kept uh, his army uh, happy by feeding them with whiskey and sausages. And so it was really a parody <laughs> of Bonaparte. Um, but uh, uh, interestingly, Marx and Engel did not uh, only wrote on the Bonapartism of the two, Napoleon, uh, the two Bonapartes, but they also analyzed, uh, for example, the, the regime of Bismarck in Prussia and Germany. Um, even though he was not uh, supported by the peasantry, uh, was not a real demagogue as the other ones, and that capitalism at the time was not fully developed in Prussia. Uh, you know, you still had the, uh, it, it hadn't gone rid of the, the, the feudalism, uh, but even then, they saw that Bismarck made use of, in a Bonapartist fashion, uh, of the antagonism between uh, the property class, so you had the junkers, the nobility, and the, the bourgeoisie, and on the other side, uh, the rising proletariat. So here again, you see their flexible approach to understanding particular regimes. And before that, can give another example, uh, you had the English Revolution. You have uh, someone like Cromwell, Olivier Cromwell. He was a leader of the revolution, but he was also the executioner of the English Revolution. And Engels said, uh, I, and I quote, Cromwell is Robespierre and Napoleon rolled into one. And I think it's really interesting. You see different contexts, similarities, but also differences. Uh, very dialectical. Um, and I found uh, Trotsky also wrote about a lot, actually, on Bonapartism. And um, he, I have a long quote from Trotsky that I think resume or encompass, actually, the, the very uh, complex dynamic of this topic. He said, bear with me, uh, <laughs> such terms as liberalism, Bonapartism, fascism, have the character of generalizations, historical phenomena never repeat themselves completely. It would not have been difficult to prove that even the government of Napoleon III, compared with the regime of Napoleon I, was not Bonapartist. <laughs> not only because Napoleon himself was a doubtful Bonaparte by blood, um, but also because his relations to the classes, especially to the peasantry and to the lumpen proletariat, were not at all the same as those of Napoleon I. Moreover, Classical Bonapartism grew out of the epoch of gigantic war victories, which the Second Empire did not know at all. But, and that's where it starts to be very interesting. But if, if we should look for the repetition of all the traits of Bonapartism, 
we will find that Bonapartism is a one-time unique occurrence, <laughs> i.e. that Bonapartism in general does not exist, but that there once was a general named Bonaparte born in Corsica. Uh, <laughs> the case is no different with liberalism and with all other generalized term, uh, terms of history. When one speaks by analogy to Bonapartism, it is, it is necessary to state precisely which of the traits found their fullest expression under present historical conditions. And so Trotsky talks about present historical conditions because he wrote this in the context of the 1930s. Uh, so in the middle of a deep crisis of the capitalist system, where we had started to see in Europe uh, the rise of authoritarian regimes, as well as, obviously, the threat of uh, fascism. So Trotsky said that the Bonapartism of the era of the decline of capitalism differs utterly from the Bonapartism of the era of the ascension of the bourgeois society. And so the classical example of Bonapartism was a very stable regime coming out, I say very stable, I should say a stable regime, I'll come back to this at, at the end, um, was a stable regime coming out of a context of revolution and counter-revolution in the early stage of the capitalist development with the development of the, um, of the, the productive forces. So it could bring a sort of equilibrium between the classes. But then, <laughs> between the First and the Second World War, um, what we saw in Europe uh, was very, we saw very unstable authoritarian regimes that were not directly the result of a revolutionary context, but actually it was a bit of the opposite. It was not coming out of a revolutionary context, but it was sort of an anticipation of what, of what, what was to, to come. I'll give you a concrete example. So yeah, in France, in 1934, you had uh, uh, Gaston Dumergue. Uh, uh, he was called at the head of the government. A um, few days uh, after a violent fascist attack in the streets of in France, um, but also a few days before the, a wave of general strike. So the context was of an anticipa anticipation, um, intensification of the of the struggle. So what happened at the time is that the government tried to hold back the class struggle uh, by promising things to both sides and in the process managed to rise above society. So there was a parliament in France, but really it was completely subordinated to uh, the executive power. So it's similar to other Bonapartist regimes, uh, but with a very particularly uh, unstable character because of the crisis of capitalism uh, was so intense and the class antagonism were, was so tense that um, the structure of the regime was very precarious. Um, the Dumergue government only lasted uh, eight months. You had similar experiences in Germany. Uh, for example, Trotsky wrote uh, uh, quite a lot on, on this. You had the von Papen and the Schleicher sorry, pardon, <laughs> pardon my German, the Fonschlacher governments. Um, 
and, um, and Trotsky gave a very good analogy of, of what were those regimes. And bear with me, use a bit of creativity to see this. So he compared those Bonapartist regimes um, as he said, it, it's like if uh, two forks are stuck symmetrically into a cork, the latter can stand even on the head of a pin. So I don't know if you see the analogy, but basically it's a, a clear stability that is, you know, very unstable. Um, and uh, he also said in this context, and I think it's, it can also, it's not just about those particular regimes, but it can apply, I think, to Bonapartism as a whole. He said, to be sure, such a government does not cease uh, to be uh, the clerk of the property owners. Yet the clerk sits on the back of the bus, <laughs> rubs his neck raw, and does not hesitate at times to dig his boots into his face. So I think it's a good uh, analogy to show the link between, you know, the dictator, the Bonaparte, and, and the class it, it, it represents. Um, so this type, um, the, the, the bourgeoisie really relied on this type of Bonapartism between, uh, in between the two uh, great, uh, the two world wars. The, 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 the ruling class relied on this as kind of an attempt to avoid uh, fascism, actually, because fascism, think about it, it's, um, would, would inevitably brings uh, the risk of a long and exhausting civil war, and which is really, you know, brings high costs for the ruling class. So they were trying to maneuver to, uh, you know, hold back the class struggle, struggle and also avoid the, the you know, the, 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 the coming to power of, of fascism. So Trotsky called this type of Bonapartism preventive Bonapartism. Um, but what happened is eventually, uh, it is this weakness of this Bonapartism that le leads the bourgeoisie and the military clique uh, uh, to surrender the power to fascism against the workers' organization. So then, obviously this brings the question of fascism. Is fascism a type of Bonapartism? Um, I would say yes and no. <laughs> uh, Hitler and, Miss, and Mussolini, for, M Mussolini, for example, um, they, you know, once they took power, we can talk about Bonapartist regimes. Uh, but the process which uh, led those regimes um, to power are very, very different than the process of you know, coming to power of, of Napoleon. Uh, um, and we really need to have a closer analysis on this. Uh, obviously, it's not, it's not a lead off on fascism, so uh, um, we can give a, a, an, uh, an explanation, but obviously this could be a, a, a presentation on its own. So those dictators, they came to power on the basis of a, a fascist mass movement, uh, which you know, were driven by the despair and the anger of the uh, enraged uh, petty bourgeoisie. So it's very different than Napoleon. So the Nazi actually didn't, you know, balance between the bourgeoisie and the wor wor uh, working class. Um, actually, the first role in, in history, we can say, of, of the fascist movement was actually to crush the working class physically. <laughs> So um, they didn't appeal to them, you know, uh, uh, they didn't promise anything to the workers to, to rise to power. So uh, it's not the same. And 
here you can really see how, you know, there is no checklist <laughs> for Bonapartism because we can't simply say, oh, you know, Hitler didn't balance between the classes, so therefore, oh, you know, it was not the, the rule by the sword, you know. <laughs> I think it would be uh, ludicrous to, 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 to say this. So in Germany, the working class was really exhausted after a long decade of revolutionary struggle. So the fascists uh, managed to crush the working class. But then that's where you, you see the, the evolution of fascism into Bonapartism, uh, because we saw kind of this uh, other phase uh, in the process where Hitler got basically rid of the fascist mass movement uh, and institute a violent military regime. So in Germany, you had the, the Night of the Long Knives that you probably have heard about. Uh, not the Canadian one. Uh, <laughs> it, what I can tell you was more brutal than the Night of the Long Knives in 1981 in Canada. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, that's not very important. Uh, <laughs> so, so basically, what happened in the Night of the Long Knives, it's just basically crushing, uh, annihilating the, the mass movement uh, of fascism. And that's how in this context that uh, you know, the, the, the fascist government could, could rise uh, and become a very, uh, you know, clear Bonapartist regime. So obviously there, there would be more to say and more in-depth analysis of, of fascism. Uh, but one thing that we can say that Trotsky uh, described is that this kind of Bonapartist regime is way more stable than the preventive Bonapartism uh, that we, we've seen before. Um, and I think we, we could saw it uh, uh, clearly with, with Germany. So obviously we can give uh, other, for, uh, other examples of bourgeois Bonapartist regimes. Uh, we can think about the Pinochet regime in Chile. Uh, that's, that's a clear example. The Suharto government in, in Indonesia. Uh, you know, Somo, the Somoza uh, government in Nicaragua. You can name, choose the dictator of your choice. Uh, and you could analyze uh, <laughs> that, not of your choice, but anyway, you, <laughs> see, you see what I mean. Um, you can look at different regimes and see, you know, the particular context of, of those uh, governments. Um, but actually, the rule of the sword is not something we only saw and see under capitalism, obviously. So um, Napoleon actually was a great fan of Caesar. <laughs> and it's not a coincidence because Caesarism, as it, it's a phenomenon that's really similar to Bonapartism, but it was based on a different class uh, uh, basis. So balancing also between the classes, uh, with you know demagogy elevating um, the state, the strong man, and we see we saw this with you know Octave, the other em emperors as well. Uh, we could give other, another example. Actually, in the Origin of the Family, Engels mentions uh, the uh, absolute monarchy that we we've seen in Europe in the 17th and 18th century, uh, which balance basically between the nobility nobility and the rising bourgeoisie and establishing in the, in the process a strong state apparatus. You can think about uh, Louis, uh, Louis XIV, the Le Roi Soleil, uh, uh, is, a, is a good example. There's another form of Bonapartism that you probably know is bo uh, proletarian Bonapartism. So a rule of the sort, but based on uh, a plan economy. 
And in this regard, there are many points of comparison between the reign of Napoleon and the reign of Stalin in Russia. So both of them, Napoleon and Stalin, they didn't play a role really in the revolution. Um, but they, they arrived uh, kind of a, at the decline of the revolution. That's where they entered on the scene of history, uh, to, so to speak. And, and as the pendulum swung uh, uh, in the other direction, you may have read Trotsky uh, talking about the Soviet Termidor, uh, referring to the Stalinization of USSR, which is actually a clear reference to the French Termidor. Uh, which was basically the beginning of the counter-revolutionary uh, phase in France after the Red Terror. So, what do we had in Russia? After a period of civil war, after the revolution, which was, just came after the First World War, <laughs> the working class was really, working class and the peasantry were really exhausted. And it's really in this context that a bureaucracy could rise uh, and balance, could rise by balancing between uh, the working class and the petty bourgeoisie. So in a way like Napoleon, uh, Stalin was the executioner of the Bolshevik party, but he continued to speak in the name of Lenin, in the name of the Ru uh, Russian revolution. Um, but he completely destroyed the political gains of the revolution. Whereas in France, you had the, 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 the crystallization of the bourgeois revolution under N Napoleon led to bourgeois bonapartism in Russia. The degeneration of the Russian revolution under Stalin led to proletarian bonapartism based uh, economically on the nationalized property relations established by the October revolution. So in the case of the USSR, we talk about the degeneration of the revolution because you had a very, you know, the most democratic <laughs> revolution you can have in history uh, that, that, you know, put the, by the workers. We had a worker state, very democratic, but eventually it degenerated. But there are other examples of proletarian bonapartism that didn't really follow the same path as Russia. So, for example, the communists in China they didn't take power on the basis of a genuine Soviet democracy. Uh, so from the beginning, we had what we called a deformed worker state, uh, not a degenerated, but a deformed worker state. So you had a planned economy, though, so they expropriated the bourgeoisie, they expropriated the capitalist uh, industry, uh, but you had a relatively strong authoritarian Bonapartist regime. And obviously, when I you know, there are different, um, uh, you know, there's a spectrum of violent regime, you know, <laughs> some, some Bonapartist regime are, are, are less uh, violent than others. And today, probably the, you know, the, 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 the most brutal example of, of this kind of regime is North Korea. Um, so, so, so this is for bo proletarian Bonapartism. Obviously, there would be more to say. Uh, uh, to this, this topic. And today, when we think about bourgeois Bonapartism, uh, we can think about important or famous examples. Obviously, Russia is probably the first that come to mind. So what happened in Russia? So you had the uh, chaotic collapse of the Soviet economy at the end of uh, 
the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. And so in the 90s, the situation was really chaotic. So um, you, in 1998, the government default, and it was a huge economic, uh, um, you know, uh, crisis. <laughs> and so the Yeltsin government was really stuck and lost a lot of his supports, both in the working class and amongst the, the, the bourgeoisie. Uh, and so that's, it's really in this context that Putin came to power to restore order. And so he promised to the oligarchs the, to control the masses, and to the masses he promised to strike against the oligarchs. And in this context, we saw uh, important attacks on some oligarchs um, and some state bureaucrats who were politically against Putin. So, um, you know, balancing between the classes, uh, Putin used, uh, you know, the populist rhetoric, the nationalist rhetoric, and like also a good Bonaparte, uh, he tries to protect his image of strength, you know, as a strongman, <laughs> image of strength by um, participating in foreign military adventures. So we saw this in, in Crimea, uh, 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 and obviously we are seeing this right now in Ukraine. So this is a clear example that we have. We also have another example, famous, I would say, um, uh, of China. <laughs> what happened in China? In China, you had a worker state, a planned economy, with a bureaucracy who eventually slowly transitioned to uh, capitalism. So the economy didn't collapse, the, the system didn't collapse uh, uh, brutally like in Russia. So it's a bit different, but in this context, you now have a bourgeois Bonapartist regime. And Xi Jinping, uh, a good uh, kind of classical example of, uh, similar to, to Putin, of, of Bonapartist maneuvers, is that a few years ago, Xi Jinping launched the anti-corruption campaign, I don't know exactly what was the name of this, uh, against some bureaucrats. So very, you see, it's a clear example of, you know, trying to show to the workers, to the workers' masses, that he is striking against the elites, you know, uh, uh, at least some of them, uh, while still fundamentally defending the, the capitalist property. And so uh, these are some of the examples we have today. We can probably think about other ones. Uh, so from what I just outlined, um, I think it's, you can see that it's really important to uh, uh, look at the concrete situation to understand uh, uh, the particular character of Bonapartist regime. But the question you can ask is, why do we study Bonapartism? Why is it important to study this phenomenon? That um, actually is because Bonapartism arises in, a, uh, in particular circumstances in the class struggle, so it can really help to have a more enriched understanding of the class, class dynamic in a particular moment, in a particular place. Uh, we can better understand the impact of the class struggle also on the regime, on the state, on the political uh, sphere. So um, now that we made it clear that we can not be mechanical, uh, formalistic when we talk about this, I think it's also important not to bend the stick in the other direction and start to see Bonapartism everywhere. Um, <laughs> because that's one thing that sometimes, you know, when you start to uh, 
to have an analysis of Bonapartism, you can, you know, there are some signs here and there of violence, of, you know, repression, of, you know, censorship, <laughs> or of this or that. Um, but we need really to be careful about it. Uh, there are, you know, elements of Bonapartism, you don't see this all the time. Uh, because we, we can't forget that the state, by definition, evil, even the most democratic state you can find under capitalism, is a violent institution. The state is armed body of men, it's a tool to maintain the, the domination of the ruling class over the exploited masses. That's how uh, it arose in history. And in this sense, it is always in a, in a way elevated uh, above society. So uh, there are elements of violence, repression, even in the most bourgeois liberal society. Clear example is here, Canada. So Canada, what was uh, Jean Chrétien said, the le plus meilleur pays du monde. So the, the, you know, you know what I mean. Uh, so in Canada, we have charter of rights, uh, we have democracy, freedom of speech, um, but the state still oppress indigenous people, oppresses also put in prison migrants, and you have clear examples of pro police brutality in Canada. Um, you know, two years ago, you had a convoy. What Trudeau did uh, uh, against the convoy? Emergency Act, which was, in a way, not specifically targeting the convoy, but just generally, it was a, a, a move to, uh, you know, uh, give more power to the, to the state, uh, extraordinary powers to the government. So, you know, you had this kind of examples. But really, it would be a ludicrous idea to see here any form of Bonapartism is still a clearly a liberal bourgeois democracy. Another example we can think about is the Macron government in France. Uh, in the last months, we've seen <coughs> Macron using more and more you know, special clauses, extraordinary power in the face of the class struggle. But it doesn't mean it's Bonapartism. Um, but then you have other example. Take someone like Donald Trump. <laughs> I bet Donald Trump would like to be a new Napoleon. Uh, probably he, he wishes, he dreams about it. Um, but we, still with, uh, with, with uh, Trump, we were far from Bonapartism. Think about it. So first, the Democrat uh, and the Republican establishments were all against Trump, or all against Trump. He was pushed out of office uh, through elections. <laughs> after uh, uh, one mandate only, and he is now facing, I don't know how many charges uh, in front of the courts, it's just getting ridiculous. Uh, so we really are fr far from the rule of the sword. Um, and, and, and then, you know, w what is, you know, the phenomenon of Trumpism is really the rise of, of right-wing uh, uh, populism. It's not Bonapartism, um, you know, it, it's really, the, the right-wing populism arri arise in the context of a deepening of the capitalist crisis and the political polarization that came with it. We have another example you can think about is the Netanyahu government in Israel. You see what Nat Netanyahu is, is doing more and more relying on the far right to govern, doesn't have a lot of options and more and more is trying to remove some powers of the, 
you know, the, the courts and giving more powers to the, to the prime minister, to the, to the state. But here, what we're seeing, an immense backlash from a huge layer of the ruling class. So here, you know, uh, you see a process of trying to gain more power, uh, but uh, the situation is clearly far from over. Uh, Netanyahu hasn't won. Um, so so you, you, can, you can see in those examples that we need to be careful the way we use terms like uh, uh, Bonapartism, because if you say there is a Bonapartist regime, for example, in, in, in the US, <laughs> uh, it can mean that, first, there is a deadlock in the class struggle. Is there a deadlock in the class struggle? I don't think so. Um, and that the working class is exhausted after long and long struggles. Uh, uh, or you can, it can mean that there is such an instability in the balance between the classes that we are on the verge of the revolution uh, that the working class could take power anytime soon. Uh, but we are not clearly in the front of, of those two possible situations. So, you know, if it was the case, we would need to change completely our perspectives and change completely our slogans. So really, this is not a small issue of just, you know, it's not an academic, academical debate of where, like, you know, which term to characterize which regime. It's, it is really a concrete uh, 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 question that can, ha can have you know, serious uh, political consequences. And a good example of this is that in 1946, Ted Grant addresses this question, the question of Bonapartism, in response to Pierre Franck, always a French in this uh, discussion. Uh, Pierre Franck, uh, who was at the time the leader of, uh, one of the leaders of, um, the French section of the Ford International. And uh, Pierre Franck wrote an article the same year, so just after the F Second World War, um, arguing that in Western Europe, um, there had been established only Bonapartist regime, Bonapartist governments, no bourgeois democracy. So basically his idea was that uh, the economic basis for reforms has disappeared. And so it was no longer possible for the bourgeoisie to have democracy, but can only have Bonapartism. It was a very mechanical um, conception that counter-revolution can only manifest itself through um, the form of fascism or Bonapartism, i.e. Uh, military police dictatorships. So Ted Grant and also the British RCP, the, 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 the organization of Ted Grant at the time, they had characterized the regimes in Western Europe. So you have France, you have Belgium, Italy, for example. They characterized those regimes as uh, regimes of counter-revolution in a democratic form. So why is that? It's because the end of the war opened up a wave of mass upsurge um, in, in, in most European countries, and there was really a potential for a socialist revolution. Um, and with the victory of the Red Army on one side, and the defeat of, the, of Hitler and, and Mussolini, uh, Mussolini on the other, uh, the reaction was basically without a strong base in the population, and without actually a, a stable military police apparatus. So <laughs> the bourgeoisie, they could not rely on military force to contain the movements. So what did they do? 
uh, they relied on, unfortunately, on the betrayal of the uh, uh, social democrats and the Stalinist leaders that collaborate, quote unquote, uh, with the bourgeois regimes to ensure, in the end, the, the defeats of, uh, of those movements. So it was a counter-revolution, but not based on military dictatorship, but it was a bourgeois, it had a bourgeois democratic character. So, and also at the time, if you look at those, those countries like France, like it would, you know, was ridiculous to talk about, about Bonapartism. Um, and really, it, this, this pers perspective of, of some leaders of the Ford International really, you know, it was a completely wrong perspective uh, of, about what was the period Europe was entering in, uh, which was basically the political preparation for the post-war boom. That was the period in which we were entering. So it had really a bourgeois democratic uh, character. Um, so you really see that a wrong method, the wrong perspective of those leaders of the Ford International really led to completely wrong strategy and tactics. Obviously, this could in itself be a <laughs> presentation and discussion of its own, but you really see the importance of, of having a very scientific ana analysis. Um, so now, um, question of stability and stability. So I've mentioned that some Bonapartist regime were more stable than others, but <coughs> I think we can have a generalization. Because it's important sometimes to go really uh, in the concrete situation, analyze each regime individually, but we, cannot, we also need to come back to the general perspective. And generally, Bonapartism is a very unstable phenomenon because it's order above the class struggle. It's order above class antagonism. So it's a contradictory phenomenon. Uh, and by creating stability now, the, those regimes generally they prepare more instability in the future. Um, and a very good example, I, I was thinking about which example to give for that. And I think a good example is uh, Iran uh, before the, the revolution. Iran in the 70s, for example. On the surface of things, there was no more stable regime than the Iranian regime of the Shah. Uh, uh, before the 1979 revolution. It was a stable point of support for Western imperialism. Um, but what we saw is that the pressure was accumulating beneath the surface. And in the space of a few months, um, it crumbled. The regime crumbled like a house of cards uh, uh, with, with the revolution. So in a contradictory way, Bonapartist regimes tend to bring more instability than liberal bourgeois democracy. That's why the, la the latter is more you know, preferred by uh, the ruling class generally. And then they, they're like, oh, why don't these the dictators, they don't, why they don't want you know, stability? <laughs> they don't want uh, you know, our liberal democracy. Uh, <laughs> that's always funny when, when you see this. Um, so, uh, um, I mentioned Iran, but what is Iran today? Uh, you can also see that today what is happening. We've seen over the last year huge movement uh, led by women, the youth, working class, um, and you had massive re police repression 
in face of a huge move movement that was already against the violence of the regime. Um, but the fact is that um, they, the fact that the, the, the regime relies so much on violence, um, some might think that it, it is a, a proof of their strength, but actually is the exact op opposite, is the proof of their weakness. Because it's like they can only rely on violence uh, uh, in the face of a very unstable, there's nothing more unstable than uh, 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 uprising of the masses. So they can only rely on violence because fundamentally a bottom protest regime doesn't have any concrete real base uh, in, in society. So yes, they maneuver between the classes, but fundamentally they don't have any social base. Uh, apart from, you know, what, the police, the army, it's not a so concrete social base. Um, and particularly in the context of deep economic crisis, like we are facing today, um, Bonaparte's, Bonaparte's regime, they have less and less room to maneuver. They cannot give crumbs to the workers to calm them. So all the anger that is accumulating in society What's the target of this, of this anger? Um, there's no broad democratic establishment. So the anger is directly directed <laughs> uh, towards the strong man or the strong government. So it's not a coincidence that we saw uh, a big revolutionary movements in the recent years against dictatorial regimes like in Sudan, in Iran, in Lebanon, um, and if you look, for example, at China today, uh, there is deep anger accumulated, accumulating against the apparently very stable regime. And now, in this context, deep economic crisis, anger of the workers, Xi Jinping is uh, centralizing more and more the powers. So this is creating a very unstable situation that has a concrete revolutionary potential. I think we should, we should not forget this important factor. So now my time is almost up, so I need to conclude. And you know, <coughs> to, to conclude, uh, we, we need to ask a question, how to fight Bonapartism? Um, I think the first thing to say is how not to fight Bonapartism is by trusting the liberals. So I think we cannot trust the liberal bourgeoisie. So the liberals, they talk about freedom and democracy, you know, you crocodile tears, Justin Trudeau, all of this. Uh, but they, at the end of the day, they will always side with the dictators against the, ruling, uh, the, the, the working class. Um, Trudeau has no problems making deals with the Saudi regime uh, while he shout loud against the Putin of this world, because, uh, you know, Putin is against the, int the imperialist interests of Canada. So it's completely hypocritical. And this is not just Trudeau. We have many examples today of this, but also throughout history. What have we seen? Uh, for example, the bourgeoisie in Spain during the, the, the Spanish Civil War, at the end of the day, they preferred the victory of Franco over the revolutionary uprising of the workers against fascism. Um, it, same in France during the Second World War, the ruling class, they preferred <laughs> the occupation by the Nazis 
over arming the, the, the Paris proletariat to fight the Nazis. Um, and in 18 Brumaire, Marx actually explained this process. In the end, the bourgeois representatives, um, they were making concessions and more concessions to Louis Bonaparte, which allowed him to rise to power. But why they were doing this? Because in the last analysis, what they were fear, their, their, their worst fear was not Bonaparte, was the working class, was the revolution. And so they wanted to crush the revolutionary working class and restore order. And so that's what we have seen. And I think that's really important for our understanding of those regimes and how to fight it. But I would say, um, but history, we've seen many examples in history, but history doesn't always repeat itself. In 1917, in Russia, if the Bolshevik hadn't, uh, didn't have led the masses to victory, we would certainly had uh, a, a Bonapartist police, mil uh, military police regime that would have taken power. After the February Revolution, there was a bourgeois government um, which eventually uh, saw Ker uh, the, the, the SR Kerensky uh, at, the head, uh, at, at the command of the, the government. And what did the Lenin and Bolshevik did? Basically, they didn't give any support to the bourgeois government. And surely, Kerensky wanted to become a Bonaparte. He wanted to do it, but he couldn't. Why? Because the Bolshevik insisted for no support for the provis provisional government and with their slogan, all power to the Soviets. And with this, they were able to mobilize and won the support of the masses on this basis. So Kerensky couldn't balance between the classes like he wished. So eventually, the October Revolution uh, uh, was the dead blow of this regime. So I think, and to end on, on this, I think the lesson from the Bolshevik is that the way to fight against the threat of, of Bonapartism is really by preparing the socialist revolution. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.